think this morning of a time where you just really wish you could just start over. Like, things aren't going well, you just want to start again. Sometimes it can be in a pretty simple, lighthearted way, like maybe you were um, just trying to write something and it didn't go well. Like earlier, someone had a prayer request that involved Chihuahua, and I was like, okay, I'd probably goof that up, how to write that. And, you know, you just want to afterwards just take it and toss it and start again. And that's pretty simple. Some situations you can just do that. You can just toss it and start fresh. But it gets more complicated when the thing that you've goofed up is um, your life. You know, like where you made some mistakes, things aren't going well, and the thing that you've balled up in frustration is actually your own life. You can't just toss that and grab a new one. So, you know, you, you, try, to, you try to fix it, but then it still is all wrinkly, and the mistake is still there, right? Sometimes it's between people. Like sometimes you have this issue, you get frustrated with someone, and, and you know, you just ball it up in frustration. But do you really want to just toss it? Because you've got this lifelong friendship that you want to get rid of, or, you know, or maybe it's even within a marriage, and, you know, God created that to be a lifelong union between man and wife. It's not something just to toss and grab a new one. And so you try to smooth it back out, but it's really hard to do so, right? Because it's all still wrinkly and you still have that issue. Well, our lesson this morning, as we're here in the, the season of, of Easter, our lesson actually shows us how we can embrace things being new right now. That we don't have to just settle for a balled up, crunched up life. But the resurrection of Jesus actually can make things new. And right here today, we can embrace a fresh start. The lesson we have, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 17. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Now, this lesson is part of a letter that Paul wrote to the Christians in the city of Corinth. And just have this map up here to kind of help you get your bearings. Corinth isn't just some city that existed years ago. It's still a very vibrant city in Greece today. So this is a map of the Mediterranean. You've got Spain over here. The boot-like country is Italy there. And then you have Greece. And right where the main part of Greece meets the Peloponnese Peninsula is where Corinth is, or as they would say, Corinthos, uh, is still right there in that area. And so Paul wrote this letter to them. Corinth in Paul's day was actually very similar in size to the Madison area um, and similar in, in some ways culturally as well. It was a very like up-and-coming, forward-thinking uh, place, a lot of education and a lot of, a lot of cool things happening there, which was great in many ways. Um, but sometimes when it comes to 
really taking God at his word could become problematic. We'll talk more about that in just, just a moment. So Paul actually went and he started that church there in Corinth, but then afterwards he hears wind, gets wind of some issues there. Because, and we see this in our environment today too, is while learning and education and wisdom and forward thinking and all that stuff can be really good, when you start playing human, placing human wisdom above God's word, it becomes problematic. And if you get too caught up in trying to, to be, you know, new and whatever and whatnot, instead of trusting what God says in his word, it's problematic. And the Christians there in Corinth were really caught up in people who looked impressive and fancy. They were even bragging about ways they were embracing things and lifestyles that went completely against what God's word said. So Paul wrote the first letter to the Corinthians really to call them out. Um, we're also told that Paul went and, and visited them and because of these issues that were going on there. Now, some people did not respond very well to what Paul said. They were not happy with him, but there were others who it convicted, and they believed what Paul said. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry for coughing in the mic. And they realized they were wrong, and so Paul encourages them that, hey, I love you guys. The reason why I reached out to you is because I love you, and he really restates them the good news and the gospel. In the letter that we have today that our lesson comes from 2 Corinthians, Paul encourages them, but then he also talks more about what has been one of the issues that has been plaguing them over and over again, is that they were having issues with Paul and some of the people were rejecting Paul because they had this kind of distorted what they valued. Paul did not look very impressive. He was pretty poor in many ways, he faced a lot of challenges and difficulties. He suffered a lot, shipwrecks and being imprisoned and things like that. And they looked at Paul, and then they saw these other people coming around who were saying different things, and these people were well off. These people were gaining lots of money as they were preaching. It looked like their lives were going smoothly, and so they were caught up in these people because this looks better. They look more impressive than you, Paul. And Paul's like, that's not, that's not totally wrong. It's not how that works. Don't gauge on what looks good and impressive. True Christian leadership is not about being impressive. It's about pointing to the one who is most impressive, pointing to Jesus. And as you point to Jesus, remember, how did Jesus do his greatest work? Jesus did his greatest work by laying down his life, suffering and dying and rising again. So Christian leadership will often look more like suffering and difficulty that you face rather than just things being smooth and good all the time. And in the book of 2 Corinthians, it's an incredible letter because Paul talks again and again about all these various ways where they have been suffering, they have been weak, and in the midst of the suffering and the weakness, God actually was using those situations to display his strength and his power and his glory. And Paul describes his ministry this way. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Jar of clay doesn't look all that impressive, right? But yet, it's this treasure inside of it. Paul might not look all that impressive, and yet God was using this to showcase his power and his glory, using Paul to do so. And as Paul encourages people to shift your priorities, he says, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, 
but what is unseen is eternal. Shift what you're looking at. We live by faith, by what we have been brought to believe, not by sight. And it's embracing a life where we live by faith, not by sight, where we can embrace the fresh start that God gives us through the resurrection. Our lesson, it begins, for Christ's love compels us. Now, all through the Lent season, we talked a lot about God's love because our Lent theme was Lent means love, and we were in 1 John. And so I encourage you to think back to some of the things you learned about God's love during the season of Lent, how it works, what it does, what it accomplishes. In this verse, it says Christ's love compels us. And the word compels, it literally means to hold together and to hold together with the idea of sending in a certain direction. Makes you think about how uh, if you've got a family, like a husband and wife, mom, dad, and little ones sitting next to the water, how as a parent, when you've got that little one by the water, you'll let them play and do different things, but then as soon as they start going into the water a little bit, there may be a point where your love will come and maybe redirect them away from the deeper water a bit right, or from the big rocks or whatnot. And it's not this, like, big restrictive thing. It's this, all right, let's have you be safe over here, right? That's maybe a little too deep. I want you to go over here. It's kind of the idea here that the love of Christ that we've received directs our lives in a way that is good and helpful and beneficial. It transforms the way we live. It redirects us now to the life that God has in front of us. It redirects us, redirects us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. It's an interesting statement. When we think about Jesus dying on the cross, we typically focus, well, that's the day Jesus died. Good Friday is the day that Jesus died on the cross. Well, because Jesus on the cross carried all of the things you and I have ever done wrong, all the ways we've turned away from God, all of our sins, because he took that all on himself, and died there, as far as God is concerned, when Jesus died, we died. Maybe not physically, maybe not physically, but we are, are who we were, who you were, died with Jesus on the cross on Good Friday. Good Friday is not just the day Jesus died, it's the day that the old you died too. When Jesus died, all died. Now, you might think, wait a minute, but all died, but not everybody receives the benefit of what Jesus Jesus did on the cross. Well, what we're talking about there is something that, we're going to use some fancy church words quick, is objective versus subjective justification. Wait, what? Big words. Let me explain them. Objective justification means that Jesus died for everyone. Everyone's sins are paid for. So you are set. Jesus died for the sins of everyone in order to pay for all everyone's sins in order that every, anyone who believes it can be set right with God. Now, subject of justification, though, is how what Jesus did on the cross becomes yours, and it's simply through faith. Only people who believe in what Jesus did on the cross receive the benefit for it. Say, for instance, if I went and deposited a bunch of money at the bank across the street, I'm not going to do that. I don't have enough bunch of money to deposit there. But if I did, and I said, hey, you can go over, there's a million dollars across the street, go use it. And if you don't believe me, you never benefit from it. You know, if you don't get a debit card or write a check or whatever, it's all there. The account's full. But if you don't believe it, you don't receive it. This is the idea. That's subjective justification. So when Jesus died, all died, 
but not everybody believes it. It's only through faith that people receive it. So we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. So when Jesus died, that old Jew died, (coughs) and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. We're going to take a moment here and flesh out what it means to live for him. Because I think sometimes, I know I've had in my own thought that living for Christ kind of sounds like, well, this is something I do like as a gift to him, that I'm offering to him, or even maybe like out of responsibility to him. And as I've grown in my faith, I'm like, it doesn't seem quite right. It seems maybe a little bit like there's got to be more going on. And it was in studying this verse that I began to really see how it's different and to really flesh out what this means. When you see the words, but for him, the way it's set up in the original language is that it's, a, it's a, an expression that can mean for, but it's within the idea of being in him, like in proximity to Christ or in the realm of Christ. That's the way this word is set up. So it's, it's, at its core, it's the idea of being in someone or in a place or in something. And then with that idea then, if you're living in someone, then you're also your life can be geared toward someone or toward something. So geared in the direction of something. In the proximity of something, then your life can be about that something or regarding that something. And then if you're in the proximity of something, you're also with that something. Okay, so th- let's put this together. Think about how Jesus died for your sins, died on the cross on Good Friday, and rose again on Easter Sunday. Living for Christ means living in Christ. Your hope, your life is caught up in the fact that Jesus died for your sins and rose again on Easter Sunday. Your hope is in his death. Your hope is in his resurrection. Your life is in Christ. But then also your life is toward Christ. Your whole life is pointed in the direction of Jesus died for my sins, Jesus rose again, so I have new life. My whole life is geared toward Christ. That then means that my whole life is about Christ. What am I doing? How am I living? My life is about the fact that he died for me and rose again. My life is about resurrection and new life and hope ahead. And then my life also is with Christ. I died with Christ on the cross. I rise with Christ on Easter Sunday. Living for Christ is about having a life that's in him, that is geared towards him. It is about him. Everything in my life is with Christ. Now, if you're a note taker, this is the time to get your pencil out. There's a blank here. To live blank Christ is to live. Go ahead and fill that blank in. To live for Christ is to live these four things. In him, toward Christ, about Christ, with Christ. To live for Christ is to live in, toward, to have a life that is about him, to have a life that is with him. So what living for Christ is is about. And it's in living for Christ in him, with him, about him, toward him, 
It's there that we embrace the fresh start. Our lesson goes on. It says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. The word that's translated regard is a word that we talked about some recently. It's most literally, it's the idea of perceiving something where you look at something and you figure out what it is. So when you look at something or you at least reach a conclusion about something. And so here Paul is saying is we don't look at people and reach a conclusion about them based on what we can see anymore. Or at least what we can see from a worldly point of view. When it says worldly point of view, it literally says from the flesh. You don't look at people and just base your conclusion on them based on their flesh, their skin and bone, what you see. Or what they're able to do with their skin and bone, with their flesh. When you look at the people in your world, in the world around you, when you look at the people in your home, when you look in the mirror, you don't reach your conclusion about those people or that person based on just what you can see or what they can do with what you can see. Paul says that there was a time when people regarded Christ that way based on flesh. Okay, look at what this guy can do. Look at his, he looks like, a, he like someone who can maybe lead a, a, a group against Rome or to lead a revolution that way. Or maybe people looked and saw, okay, he doesn't look that impressive because he just looks like a carpenter's son. Like, they based it on the flesh. Paul says, we don't do this anymore. We once regarded Christ in this way, but now you don't reach a conclusion about him based on what you just see with his flesh and bones. And if you don't look at Christ that way, you also don't look at other people that way. You don't look at the world around you and reach a conclusion about the world just based on just what you can see. You don't look at the people in your life and just base the final conclusion based on flesh and bone. And you don't even reach that conclusion about yourself. When you look in the mirror, you don't perceive people based just on what you can see. You get to see people, you get to Perceive you get to know people and know life and understand life in a new, fresh way. You get to start fresh. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And underneath the word new, I have the word fresh because in the original language, there's a word that's typically translated new that means like, like where it just came into existence. And there's another word that means new, that's typically translated new, that doesn't mean that it just came into existence, but it means that it's been made like new, or it's been made fresh, it's been freshened up. And that's the idea here, that it's not that it just came into existence, but it's been made fresh and new. And in the verses that lead up to our sermon lesson today, when Paul talks about the resurrection, we get an idea of how this works, how we get made new and freshened up in this way. So we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. So we have this physical body. It says, jumping down to verse 2, Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. So that your body will be clothed with resurrection. Maybe here's another way to think about it. This last summer at our, well, really more fall, at our, in our yard, we had a big project. Um, we had a project involving a swing set, right, Ruthie? 
And it was this very cool swing set that, let's see, um, Gordy and Subethke gave to us right, when Ruthie was born. And G Gordy and Bill Anderson put it up for us. It was awesome. Um, but unfortunately, over the years, like, the wood really deteriorated, and it was getting pretty rough. And so we decided that it was time for a new one. Now, thankfully, thankfully, on Facebook Marketplace, there was someone who said, free swing set. You just have to come get it. So we did. We went to get it. Um, but in doing so, I also, like, messaged people because, as many of you know, I am not handy at all. So I was like, I need help to get this thing. And thankfully, I had a friend help take it down. Carl back there in the booth was very instrumental in helping teach me how to put it together, to put it back up. Um, so we had quite this project, and now we have the new and improved swing set set up in the backyard. Now, one of the things that we did when we put the swing set up, because it had been in someone's backyard, is right away, after we got it all the way up, you know what we did? We stained it. Why, do you, why would I stain it right away? What's that? Preserve it, right? Part of it is to make it look like, isn't it amazing when you put stain on, it can look so much better, like fresh and new, but also to preserve it. Like there's something about putting the stain on that kind of protects it from the elements so it can continue going forward. And even this piece right here, this is actually um, one of the pieces from the old swing set. Uh, it was interesting. There were a few pieces on the new one that had rotten some, but we were able to, to salvage some of the old pieces from the old swing set. You clean it up, stain it, and it filled in the gaps on the new one. And it's kind of amazing how when you cover something with the right thing, how it can not only make it look brand new, but also help it continue going forward. By the way, I thought about staining this here in front of church this, today, and then I realized that stain and a white robe is probably a really bad combination. So be proud of me, Ruthie. I made a smart choice today. I did not get stain all over, all over my robe. But this is a picture of what happens with the resurrection. Like when you are raised back to life, you have your, it's your body, it's you, but now it's clothed with resurrection. Like how the stain, when you put it on, now it makes you brand new and fresh and just and totally like this fresh start, that's how it is. And how, think about how the stain locks it, things in so that it protects and preserves going forward. Resurrection does that too. Now, resurrection is the ultimate cover though because with every coat of stain, you got to every so often do it again, do it again, right? Jesus' resurrection means that you, your covering of resurrection lasts on into forever. That's the idea here. This is the picture of resurrection, is that you, who you are, your body, that when you're raised back to life, is clothed with resurrection, made fresh and new. It's clothed with what Jesus did on the cross. It's clothed with the fact that Jesus rose again. When you stand again, when this world as we know it comes to an end and you stand risen, you will be coated in resurrection. But now what's so surprising about our lesson today is that it says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Which means it doesn't just say that someday you will be coated in resurrection, that it will come. It says it has come. So there's already a reality where the resurrection of Jesus covers you right now. It's part of how Jesus could say what he did to Peter after he rose from the dead. 
after Jesus rose from the dead. You remember when Jesus is making breakfast for his disciples on the lake shore? And Peter had, had denied Jesus, and Jesus was able to look at Peter and say, Peter, I'm calling you to go forward. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. This is what I called you into. It's like a whole new start. New beginning for Peter. Step forward. And if you look at the Peter who denied Jesus on Maundy Thursday, and then the Peter who preaches on Pentecost, it's like two totally different people. Such a transformation. Peter got a fresh start. And we have a fresh start now too. Paul, in another letter that he wrote, in his letter that he wrote to the Galatians, wrote about baptism. It says, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Baptism is more than just saying like, all right, God, I'm proclaiming my faith to you. It actually, Scripture says that, that when used with the word, the water with the word actually connects you in a way to what Christ has done. So that when he died, you died too. Your sins died with Christ. So that as you, as Jesus rose from the dead, you're connected to his resurrection. So that now you have been clothed with the perfect life of Christ. If you've been baptized into Christ, when you look at yourself, you can see Christ. For anyone you know who has also been baptized into Christ, when you look at them, you see them through Christ. When God looks at you, he sees you through Christ. Let's just let that sink for a minute. Christ Jesus is God. So when God looks at you, he sees, he sees you as a spitting image of himself. Cleansed, pure, clean. He sees you through Christ. He sees you through Christ, and then you can see other people also through Christ. You have already, as far as God's concerned, been clothed with resurrection, which is why you can have a fresh start, fresh and new right now. So let's embrace that. Let's embrace how we get to look at things differently. Let's embrace it, first of all, by calling out some of the ways that we've been looking at things poorly. If you're, again, taking notes in your worship folder, there are two sets of glasses there. Above the top one, I encourage you to write the word old and then the word, word flesh. And there's a bunch in here. I don't know if you're going to be able to get it all noted in, but you can do your best. The old way of looking at people and looking at ourselves is based on what is seen. Just based on what you can see. So starting thinking about what you can see, what's the first thing? It's based on physical appearance could be one way. Where you just view people based on how they look. You know, and it can be as simple or shallow, if you will, as... You know, handsome, beautiful, not, not, strong, whatever. It could just be based on, that's one way of looking at people the old way. But another one is one's own ability. Does that person seem able? Do they have the power to do this? Are they talented this way, gifted this way? What are they able to do here? Another old way of looking at people and things is based on our own definition of success what we think a successful life looks like. And kind of similar to that then is, is what does the good life look like? Do we look at someone and say, man, their life is smooth, it's going well, that's, that means things are good. Or looking at someone according to performance. What are they able to do or to achieve? 
Now, as you look at this old way list, these things aren't all necessarily bad. Like, there are certain, uh, certain contexts where you do need to judge performance. Like, if you're a boss, you probably have a performance report with your employees, and that's fine. It's in the context there. But there's a bigger way, a better way to look overall at people. An old way of looking at people or looking at yourself is based on whether or not you've acted good. I don't know if that's the best English, but I think it gets the point across. Have you done good? Have you done well? Have you been good before people and to people? Or the other side of it is, have people been good to you? Do you look at people based on whether they've been good to you or whether they have disappointed you or hurt you? Have they been bad to you? Or... Do you look at yourself and say, I see myself through whether or not I've been a good Christian? You know? Have I done all the churchy things, the Christian-y things? Is that how you, you view yourself? Seeing the old way, kind of to wrap it all together, is situationally dependent. What does that mean? Based on what I see right now, what I feel right now. It's not really focused on the future, but it's focused on what's happened to me, happening to me, what's in front of me, situationally dependent. Take these glasses and break them. So we don't have to see things this way. Because we get to live for Christ, which is in him, which is geared toward him, which is all about him, and with him, with the fact that he died, with the fact that he rose again, so we have new life. We get to see things in a way that is fresh and new. That's your next set of glasses. Fresh and new <coughs> in Christ. Fresh and new. So what do we do? Instead of seeing things based on what we can just see, we look at life by faith. What do we believe? What we believe then informs what we see. So instead of looking just at the surface of people, we look at the heart. What's going on on the inside? What is God working inside someone? We can look at people, too, instead of just the physical appearance as we see now, through a resurrection appearance. This might be one that's even, as you think about looking at other people, maybe this is one that's really important for looking at yourself. Sometimes we can struggle with how we see ourselves, like physically. Like maybe you look in the mirror and you don't like how you look. You don't like where you've been. But realize... God loves you and your body so much that he will raise your body, that one, the one you have, from the dead and coated in resurrection, and it will be beautiful. God looks at you and he loves what he sees. So you can begin to see yourself that way too. Look at yourself from, from resurrection appearance. When you look at yourself, you don't have to just be limited by your ability with what you see. See God's ability in you. What is God able to do in and through you? Look at yourself and don't just see your talents, but see spiritual gifts of what God wants to do through you. See God's plan for how he wants to, to use you and work through you. And as you embrace God's plan, then you can embrace true blessedness. And it seems like kind of a fancy word, but I put blessedness that way in there because it's kind of in contrast to the good life and success with the other glasses. Sometimes being blessed, what did Jesus say? Being blessed sometimes looks like being meek 
and poor. Sometimes being blessed means hungering for what's right. Sometimes being blessed means persecuted for your faith. Throughout this letter, Paul talks about sometimes being blessed means being weak so he can show his strength. So embrace God's plan and embrace true blessedness. Instead of being caught up just in performance, embrace faithfulness. It's not so much about achieving this, this, and that, but are you being, are you being faithful, just walking forward in what God has called you to? See yourself as being clothed with Christ. Look at yourself through the perfect life of Christ. Realize that's how God sees you. And if you are clothed with Christ, then you can be reconciled to other people too because you can see them through Christ just like God sees you through Christ. See your whole life in Christ and see your whole life from a perspective that is eternal. If I'm going to stand right with God at the resurrection, then it changes the way I see now. If I'm going to stand right with God and with, with the people around me at the resurrection, then I can embrace them differently now. Begin to see and look. Look in a way that is fresh and new in Christ. When you do so, when you try to do so, I know you're going to go back to your, li- your, your day and your life and you're going to see this ball and this mess, right? And it's going to, and we're going to try to smooth it back out again and everything. And those wrinkles are going to be there and it's going to be frustrating. But remember, the new has come. And so as frustrated as you can be with yourself, the new has come and you can see yourself through Christ. When you look at the people around you and as much as this ball might be here, you can see them right now. The new has come and begin to see them through Christ. When you look at the world and things going on, you can have this ball, it's all crinkled up, but the new has come, brand new, fresh. And you can begin to see and embrace this way because you know that you will rise because Jesus rose and that resurrection has come. And you can have a fresh start.